Before we start the show, if you want more stock talking, check out my newsletter at tinyletter.com slash bbrostoff or visit postcoronastocks.com. You can find me on Twitter at at BMB21. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Stock Talking, an exploration of financial markets in the context of the post-corona world. COVID-19 has changed the way we value equity, debt, and business as a whole. My goal is to find great companies who can thrive in the new normal. I can't wait to get started. All right. Welcome to another episode of Stock Talking, back by popular demand for the third time, Diligent Dollar. The people love Venom, and I'm glad to have him back on. How you doing, buddy? Great to be back. Thanks for having me again. So we got some good topics lined up for today. Um, we got the ha- housing shortage and the housing market in general, specifically manufactured homes. We got Civio. Um, and we've got the general concept you wrote a post about of good companies with bad balance sheets, which I want to talk about first. And we'll use that to kind of talk about Civio next. And then uh, we can close with this housing stuff. So let's start with a post you wrote. Uh, I believe it's called Good Companies, Bad Balance Sheets. Uh, one unique thing I think about your blog and from talking to you in general is you're not afraid to, to look at a company that's four times levered, whereas many other people would just back away. Um, so why are you interested in those companies and why do you think they often make uh, for interesting names to look at and trade? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. And I, I think it's funny because if you talk to most equity managers, they would basically shy away from highly levered companies. And the, one of the main reasons is because they can also be the most volatile. Um, and so that's one of my main points that I make in the post is that by adding leverage onto any business, it's inherently going to make it more volatile. And I personally think it makes it overly volatile, especially when you have a good business um, that can create that volatility can create some really good opportunities. Um, so that was the main point of the post is, is really, you know, quote unquote, bad balance sheet on a good business can create significant opportunity. Um, I think within that, you know, you kind of have to have the good business. But um, I think we as equity analysts are much better at understanding business quality and then, you know, figuring out everything that comes with that um, afterwards is, is, you know, not as hard. So, you know, number one, I think the equity market just completely overreacts when you have a good business that has leverage. And, you know, within that, I think the equity market doesn't look at leverage correctly, in my view. So, for example, I, I equated similar to a home. If you buy a home for $100, typically, you know, you can get a mortgage for $0.80 cents or $80 worth of that value. So 80% LTV and you put in 20% of equity. So most Americans are basically in the LBO market without even realizing it because they put on a ton of leverage on to an asset, but they're comfortable with it because they have, you know, 20% equity. It, you know, it's not due for 30 years. You can make payments over a long period of time. And, you know, when, if there's a stall in housing or something like that, you know, prices may come down like we saw in the last crisis, but it's not like, you know, it, it's not the same volatility that we see in the equity market. Which is funny to me because, you know, I don't have any hard and fast, like, you know, actual study on this, but it's my experience that as soon as a company goes beyond three and a half turns of leverage, the, the stock becomes extremely volatile, especially when there's like a broader sell-off. Those stocks that are over three and a half times levered, four times leveraged, they will react way way more negatively on the downside than others because then people start questioning like oh do they have covenants do they um you know what what can the lenders do here you know is all the cash flow just going to go to paying down debt now as an equity holder and i think a lot of that is misguided and one example you know i provide on that is like you know let's just use simple numbers if you have a business that's worth you know six times and they're three times levered, okay, that's 50% LTV. But if you have a business that's worth 10 times and it's three times levered, that's 30% LTV. So you have a much bigger equity cushion. 
But it's funny how the equity market doesn't really react that way. It, you know, the debt doesn't really move that much. And instead, the equity check compresses in volatility. So, you know, long story short on that, on that piece, it's, you know, it just the volatility creates opportunity. The second thing I really like about it is I personally, you know, this isn't anything new or um, novel that I'm saying, but like, you know, a lot of people say time is on your side in the equity market. Uh, allowing your earnings to compound is the one true advantage that we as analysts have on our side of just, you know, buy a good business, let their earnings compound, you know, don't just trade and, uh, you know, lose money on taxes and things like that. Like patience is rewarded, I guess you could say. For a, a levered equity that's generating a lot of free cash flow, that patience is rewarded the most. So if we go back again to like a, a simple example, let's say you have a business that's worth, you know, 10 times EBITDA and they have, I'm just going to use some outrageous, like they're eight times levered, but they generate a ton of cash and you have, you know, relative um, certainty in that cash flow. Like I said, this is, this is on a good business. Well, what happens if, you know, earnings don't grow. They're st they're still worth ten times EBITDA. Um, like they're worth ten times EBITDA, and you don't really expect earnings to grow. But they're generating enough cash that they're able to pay down the debt from eight turns of EBITDA, uh, eight turns of EBITDA to seven, to six, to five. Well, all of a sudden, you're building your equity in that business by just using the cash from the business, and that is no different than again buying a house. When you buy an investment property, you can make money because you are buying the investment property at a high LTV and you're letting someone else pay the debt down. And it, even if the house price doesn't appreciate by the debt being paid down, you are gaining equity and you're realizing a pretty good return on your investment, even if the house doesn't appreciate. So it's the same thing for levered equities. It's the same reason why I always get attracted to it. Um, and so, you know, maybe I'll stop there, but, you know, I could go on, but, it, you know, I think you can tell this is kind of why I, I came back to that post often because it's something that attracts me to, to certain investments. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And, and something I think you write in the post and you've said multiple times is a dollar paid down for debt is a dollar to the equity. Um, it, it's a good way to kind of build up equity, whether you know, you're know you in that position of paying down a house or own a stock that that's delevering. Um, the example you use in the post, which I think is kind of interesting, is Platform Specialty Products, which is now called Element Solutions. Um, so take us to the point when this company was seven times levered and the market had freaked out. Um, you know, I, it would have been awesome to buy this thing at seven times leverage and kind of watch the, the stock go up from there. But you know, at the time, obviously, I'm sure a lot of people were we're pretty freaked out and staying away from the stock. So at that point, what would have made it um, a name that perhaps didn't have as much risk as people thought? Yeah. So, you know, just to take, just to kind of walk through the background, I won't go through everything because it was kind of complicated, but it, it was a SPAC. Uh, it was Martin Franklin who basically built up Jarden that was acquired by Newell. Um, and Jarden essentially was a roll up and they would roll up a lot of businesses that, Maybe weren't interrelated, but um, you know they would share um, general and administrative expenses, um, and so essentially they would buy these really high free cash flow, highly resilient businesses, um, and then use that cash flow to go buy more businesses. So it was it was almost like a, a mini Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Jardin shareholders realized an excellent compound return, um, and so Martin Franklin basically formed a SPAC to do the same thing. And they decided to do it in the chemical market. And they, they went into really attractive areas of the chemical market. Nothing really super commodity, um, a lot of high touch, high margin, low capex um, businesses, nothing really too exposed to like, you know, what happens is business of oil gets cut in half. In fact, like a lot of those businesses that he bought, if oil fell, you know, their margins would actually be up because they just, they wouldn't move price. Anyway, his whole thesis was very similar to basically, it's very similar, like if you think about what charter communications 
strategy is right now. They're a cable company, broadband company that basically tells the market, we're going to be four and a half times levered at all times. And we're just going to use excess capital to buy back stock. Martin Franklin viewed it a similar way, but they said, we're going to maintain four and a half times leverage and we're just going to buy businesses and use the cash flow from those businesses to go out and buy more businesses. So it was kind of similar just using M&A to grow. Um, and at first the market loved it. Um, it, it was almost like, it, I could tell it was going to get dangerous because sell side would post these, these models of, well, if it maintains four and a half times leverage and then buys these, like this hypothetical company, then it could go out and buy this and this and this and build and build and build. And it, it basically assumed nothing could go wrong. And that's, you know, the stock surged and still has not recovered to where it was despite, you know, four years passing. But, um, you know, long story short, they went into two completely different areas. They went into, um, crop protection chemicals. So like herbicides, insecticides, fungicides. And then they also went into um, more of like electronic chemicals. So things that would go on like a circuit board or, you know, anything like that. Um, and, and a bunch of other sort of small chemicals came within that. Some, some tiny like oil field services chemicals, but other industrial chemicals, but really like a couple different things. And those markets are actually extremely stable, but one issue they ran into was we essentially went into an ag recession and there was a pullback in spend. There was some inventory destocking. And then one of the biggest factors was Brazil's currency depreciated massively. So when they reported earnings, you know, I can't remember the exact result, but, you know, because of the Brazilian reality, uh depreciation, you know, they were reporting like sales were down 20%. And in reality, you know, I don't think they were really down that much. It was because the currency effect and people were, I think, misconstruing local translation currency impact versus like actual currency risk because they they were selling in there. All their costs were in Brazilian currency and everything like that. And then you're selling into a dollar commodity market. So actually, Brazilian farmers are making, you know, pay at that point because they're all their costs have depreciated but they're selling into a dollar market so their profitability went way up and that's when i started to take a serious look at platform now called element is because i realized that they were going to be able to raise price and offset the currency impacts um you know because the farmer was doing really well and everyone else was in the same cost position anyway long story short their reported leverage balloons and so they went to seven times that's when the narrative starts to get terrible of like oh are they going to trip their covenants no they didn't have any covenants um no real ones with teeth anyway um they didn't have a cash flow problem they were still generating cash um these were still really good businesses at the end of the day um and so if you were a long-term investor and realized that they could you know get through this it was a tremendous opportunity to buy at that time, you know, there's other businesses that I could say that you could buy better than that. But at that time, it was just this negative cycle of bad news that I think a lot of us see from time to time of, oh, this company's not performing. Oh, they didn't know what they bought. Oh, leverage is so high. The thesis is completely off now because they're going to have to spend so much time delevering from seven to four and a half, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they completely, the market was completely missing that, okay, well, the stock has gotten destroyed. You know, I think at the time, the multiple went from, you know, low double digits to maybe mid-teens to like nine. And if you, you know, I personally thought the business was worth 12 times EBITDA and I was able to buy it at nine. Plus I knew management was kind of backed into the corner. They had to delever. They had to pay down debt. Uh, I viewed it as a great opportunity to then come into the stock and just let it play itself out, which it has. Um, so sort of a long, you know, winded response with some background, but that's really like a great example of what I, I look for. Currently, I mean, there's there's some names I haven't necessarily written about, but there's some names in like the packaging space, for example, that, you know, management has taken on a lot of debt, you know, maybe they're five times levered but it's packaging. They're highly diversified. They're huge. You kind of know it's going to be maybe a GDP business. 
and they generate a ton of cash. So it's like, I'm just going to wait and I'll let them pay down debt. And I'm just going to ignore what the market says intraday about the company. Yeah, you bring up packaging in, in different industries. And it, it does bring up the point you say in the post that you can't look at leverage in a vacuum. I mean, I think one thing I struggle with is what is the proper leverage multiple uh, for our specific company? Yeah, we'll talk about Tivio in a second. But yeah, I think when, when I looked at it first, it was like, oh, now they're down to 2.1 times. That, that seems pretty low. Like I can certainly live with that with as an investor. Don't know if they need to delever anymore. You compare that to uh, Wingstop, which is, I think, four times, or National City Media, which I also think is, is four times. Obviously, different industries. But um, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on how to know whether four times is a concern versus two times versus other industries might get up to seven or eight and it may be fine. Um, how do you go about figuring out like how much is too much? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a similar theme along all the businesses that we just named is that let's take a step back on, you know, all leverage is essentially quoted as like a, a multiple of EBITDA, so times EBITDA. But we all know EBITDA is not cash flow. Um, but if you compare a business, let's say, is uh, five times levered on an EBITDA minus CapEx basis. So if you start looking at a business on an EBITDA minus CapEx, then you're actually getting an understanding of how much debt uh, can they pay down with, quote unquote, cash flow. In all of those examples you just named, so Wingstop, they're a franchisor. They have very little CapEx. EBITDA is very similar to like actual cash flow before interest. Um, National City Media, that's an advertising platform, obviously very asset light. Platform, now known as Element, was a, is a chemical company, but they don't really do many chemical formulations. CapEx was two to 3% of sales. So also very asset light with high margins. In all of those examples, you know, their cash flow is actually well supporting the debt. I don't really have like a hard and fast rule of what I view as like what's way too high of leverage or what's way too low. I, I tend to look at it on like an LTV basis versus, you know, times EBITDA or anything like that, because that gives me a better understanding of, you know, is this company actually at risk of teetering over the edge? So I think we could all agree if you're buying something that at a 90, a business at 90% LTV, that really doesn't give you much room for error um, if something were to go wrong. Now, if you do all the homework and say, yeah, it's 90% LTV right now, but like the cash flow is so solid, I'm comfortable buying it, then it could be a huge home run. You know, that's that's a true levered equity. Um could bounce around to the upside in your favor if things start to go right. Um, and so, you know, I, you know, maybe it makes sense to transition over to Civeo. Civeo, I wouldn't qualify as, you know, in my original post, I said good companies, bad balance sheets. I wouldn't qualify Civeo necessarily as like a very good company, but it's, it's already gotten to that point of management was stuck in a box, as I like to say, and they're only, choice of action was to pay down debt because the equity market was punishing them so hard on, you know, the business they levered up to do an acquisition. Um, and so you're kind of, when you're entering it, the stock today, you're already entering at a point where management has been forced to pay down debt. And so when you're two times levered or even two and a half times levered, I mean, you basically have to think the business is not worth a lot to, Think you're at risk of teetering over the edge. So let's, you know, a five times EBITDA multiple is generally viewed as a very low quality, you know, low return on capital business. If you think it's only worth five times, then it's 50% LTV. I don't really view that as, you know, teetering over the edge. The other thing about it is it's not like this is 50% LTV, but uh-oh, they're hemorrhaging cash. So where are we going to be in a couple of years from now? No, management is telling you they generate a ton of cash. Um, and that's essentially where they are right now. Um, so in that, in that example, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about the debt at all. And plus they've proven, unlike a lot of businesses out there, they've actually paid down debt. A lot of other businesses try to deal with the debt situation by growing EBITDA. 
And, you know, it, it maybe that ends up working or it doesn't. Uh, in this case, they're actually using cash to pay down debt, which is actually theoretically building your equity value. For sure. Yeah. I think looking at the Q4 earnings transcript, it was pretty impressive to me. It was like they would quote their free cash flow and the debt they paid down and those numbers were nearly identical. But I guess before we get too far down the road on kind of the delevering story, maybe we can talk about what the company actually does. Because I think the business models, it's the first company I've heard of kind of providing these like lodging and hospitality services in the mining space. So yeah, if you could just do a brief business overview um, and maybe how the that business model impacts the volatility of those cash flows from year to year, that would help explain kind of the delevering story more. Yeah, so you, I think you nailed it. I mean, they're basically a lodging and hospitality name for metals and mining or oil and gas companies or just general commodities. So essentially, if you think about you know, this used to be in America, you would have a big mine and the mining company would actually set up a town for all the miners to live in. And then they would, you know, rent the, all the properties to the miner workers. And essentially like the mining company owned the whole town. That's kind of similar to what Saveo does is that, um, you know, in these remote areas like in Australia or, you know, in Canada or even in the U.S. in, in remote areas of like Texas, you have these areas where you need these workers to be there a considerable amount of time, but there is no town. So essentially, Saveo goes out and, and puts up lodging infrastructure and also, you know, they'll take care of dining and things like that for the workers um, and the companies that, you know, have set up um, those mining or oil and gas uh, exploration um, businesses will pay Saveo for that service. Makes sense. Yeah, it seems like the primary locations they're doing it are United States, Australia, and Canada. And it kind of surprised me trying to, to look at the financials quickly. Like those three areas seem to be producing radically different results. Um, so it, yeah, it seems like Australia is doing well and everything else not so well right now. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to what what's the commodity that you're you're going for, right? So you know, you were kind of hinting at the cash flows here, and EBITDA have been highly volatile. And I think you'll see the biggest stark change in their earnings profile after the oil bust, um, and, you know, the price bust. And also, you know, shale went from, you know, being massive component of the oil and gas story to, you know, now shale has been really hurting the past few years. And so that's going to hurt Saveo's ability to open up new lodging areas when, you know, rig count is going down. Australia, on the other hand, is more of the metals and mining side and also met coal and things like that. They're used for steel, which then is exported into China um, or anywhere in Asia where there's you know, growth for that industry. So um, there's kind of been a stark change in earnings profile from that. And I, you know, I did get a question on the post, so I'll go ahead and address it on here. Of, you know, how do I view CapEx in this business? Because it looks like CapEx has come way down too when earnings have come way down. And in my view is, you know, if CapEx is going up, that's actually a good thing because that means they're building more lodges and hospitality centers because they're gonna serve more business. And so, you know, if you go back, I can't remember the exact numbers, but like, if you go back to like 2013 and 2014, I mean, they were doing over 300 million of EBITDA. Um, now it's like closer to hundred million. They were spending a lot in CapEx, way more than they do now. I think LTM, they only did 10 million. They probably were doing over at least over 100 million back then. But the reason was because the business was booming. And as they were spending more CapEx, they were getting more earnings. So if they start spending more in CapEx significantly more, then I would expect EBITDA to go way up. And for a company of this size, you know, I haven't looked at the market cap, you know, in the past couple of days, but like, you know, tiny market cap, if they start doing more in EBITDA than, you know, the market cap, then I think we're all going to be in a good position on the stock. So I'm not too concerned about that. I think at this point, you know, part of the thesis that I do think is a risk to the thesis is that it does seem like the commodities market has bottomed, at least in the near term. We're coming out of COVID. It is interesting. I'm not a, you know, I even put a post out there on, you know, I'm not a huge buyer of like, now we're going to see structural inflation based on what the Fed has done. But I do think it's interesting that we're entering a period of, it's not just the US is exiting a year long lockdown, it's the entire world at one time. And 
you know, that may not mean there's like a structural increase in commodities, but there does seem to be a pull on commodities right now that's causing prices to go up. Does that mean that more mines are opened or at least the ones that are currently there, do they stay open instead of deciding to shutter? I think the odds are probably yes. And if I'm wrong, well, you can kind of underwrite to these past year's earnings of like super trough and the cycle and I'm, they're generating cash on those levels. So it's like, I'm pretty comfortable with this investment. Yeah. The title of your post is, you know, this is a 25% um, free cash flow yield, given that the company hits the midpoint of guidance. So I think it's 50 to 60 million. If they go 55, uh, you know, it's, in four years, they'll earn back their market cap. I guess the question is, as you said, like what happens over the next four years? Uh, you know, let's say like, I don't want to take a view on commodities for all the things you just said. I'm not a macro specialist. It does sound like even if you know they go back to kind of a, a bear scenario where commodities have, have busted, it's still not a bad free cash flow yield, right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, what do you view as a, an average free cash flow yield? I mean, the S&P 500 is probably trading at 3 to 4% free cash flow yield. Maybe average is 5%. You know, one thing I, you and I have talked about offline is that you have to be somewhat careful of free cash flow yield to equity because... In, in reality, free cash flow yield equity does tend to be highest on companies that are about to go bankrupt in a kind of funny way. But it's obvious because, you know, people think the free cash flow will be this and the equity market cap is like, you know, cents on the dollar because people know it's going to go bankrupt and it can't get out of its, its debt situation. That's not the way for Cebeo. They've paid down debt. They're two and a half times levered. That is very reasonable. Uh, they don't have any maturities over the next couple of years. So, and I, I honestly think they're probably going to roll it within the next year based on, you know, the results they, they show and they um, prove it out. So, you know, what is the, is the right number? Let's say free cash flow is cut in half. Are they still generating a 12 and a half percent free cash flow yield the equity? That's a pretty good return um, to equity. And I would take that all day. So you're right. I mean, I, I, I view your downside at this point as pretty limited. Definitely. Um, and yeah, the, the delevering story is, is interesting. And I, again, I, I'm with you on the bull case for the stock. But like, let's talk about how the company got in that situation in the first place. So they're, they're down to 2.1. I think it was a couple turns more uh, at the peak. I'm not sure what the peak leverage was. But I guess, how did management get themselves in the situation? I know there was an acquisition in 2018. And, and I guess I'm wondering, like, are they basically saying, you know, mea culpa, we're, we're going to delever because we made a mistake by levering too much. Um, so what was the original impetus in the first place for getting so levered? Yeah, I think, number one, they did do an acquisition. Number two, though, is like, you know, we have seen the commodities bust. So they had a certain level of earnings before, and now that's come down. Um, you know, we've kind of talked about that. But they did make an acquisition of a Canadian player, Noralta. Um, and they took on leverage. They did issue stock for that as well, but they did take on leverage. I think they took it up to maybe five times. Um, and that was, you know, I think what people thought was a bottom in the commodity market at that point too, but obviously in 2020 oil went negative. So they did not time the market well then either. And so I think their um, choice to pay down debt now is sort of a, hey, you know, we're using all cash to get debt down. We realize the stock is getting punished because of this. We realize that people, you know, even though we're, we're telegraphing how much cash flow we, we generate, people still aren't touching the stock in meaningful size. And so, you know, this is what we need to do to right the situation to get people to come back in. Makes sense. Yeah, management seems to be telling the right story. So I can get it's discounted both because commodities busted on them. They made a mistimed acquisition. Makes sense. You also write about another reason. So there is an insider who's been selling pretty frequently for the last couple of years. So talk a bit about that. Yeah. So the Torgersons were the main owners of Neralta and they were issued a significant amount of equity in Saveo at the time of the acquisition, which was, you know, about three years ago, a little bit over. Um, and <clears throat> so you know, for whatever reason, I, I have my thoughts on it, but that the, that family is now selling uh, and selling significantly. 
And for context, you know, they own about 10% of the company. So they are selling almost every single day. I think it's like every three days, there's a form four that's released of them just selling the stock. And I think that personally is pressuring the stock. Um, interestingly enough, you know, we're recording this on April 22nd. Um, they have not sold in the past few days. And Sabea's stock has gone up, which I just, you know, I don't know what the reason is there, but that that's happened. So significant selling pressure has, has exited. Now, I'll circle back to why I think he is selling or the family is selling. Um, you know, they chose to exit the business. They sold three years ago um, to Saveo and they decided to take equity. Um, it's clear that they just kind of want to move on from the business and um, they're able to sell. Um, it could be a, a choice of like, maybe they don't view this industry as, as generating a, a decent amount of money in the long run. But it's also true that they have 10% of the stock, which is a significant amount of money. I mean, that's over $20 million just tied up in this security. You know, they're old, they've built their business, they're ready to retire, you know, whatever your reason is, if I had that money just sitting in there and I had another opportunity or I wanted to do other things with it, that it would make sense to just sell it if I could. Um, so, you know, I can't tell you the exact reason, but it doesn't actually dissuade me from, from owning it. Yeah, yeah, I guess we can only speculate as to why they might be slowing down. I mean, I suppose to allay some of those concerns, you know, it does seem like the customers like the business, right? Like there have been some renewals there. And then yeah. also you've written a bit how they could be an M&A target. So clearly, like from the outside, there are potential players out there who might want to own 100% of the company. That's right. So uh, Target Hospitality, which funny enough, is way more levered than Saveo. It's like five times levered, um, was approached for a takeout offer at a lower price than where it's trading now. The stock is ripped uh, as people realize like, oh, there's actually private equity interest in this um, sector. Um, that stock is ripped, but Saveo has not really ripped that much um, at all. And I think part of that is back to like your selling pressure here. Interestingly enough, you know, because there's such a big holder, you know, that kind of helps a, a private equity firm because um, they can negotiate the transaction with a huge holder to get it um, approved. So it's interesting how, how that's playing out. Definitely. All right. Last thing I want to talk about, because I think it's it's relevant for Sivio uh, and also potentially some other companies uh, that kind of may have a similar profile. So We've talked a bit about selling puts versus owning the stock as ways to play this. Uh, similar, I mean, you're, you're both long in each situation, but you know, puts your, your upside is somewhat capped. You, know, you sell it and that, that's the maximum of proceeds you can make. Uh, for Civio, I think you sold puts on this company. Um, I own the stock and I've also sold puts. Um, do you have a preference between those two trades and like which trade uh, do you think like, uh, is the better one to, to be making right now? Man, that's a, that's such a good question. I, I will say, you know, I, I have sold puts on it. Um, I've sold probably an equal amount of puts as I have in the position. And I guess I'll, I'll kind of explain why. And um, I'm not, you know, I, I think in all, all honesty, I may look back, and this has happened to me a lot, where I've decided to sell puts on a name because it looks really attractive to sell puts. And that ends up being the wrong decision because, you know, the puts looked attractive to sell at that price because the equity was actually so cheap and the market was way too bearish on it. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say, I don't necessarily think it, it might be the best call, but just to give, you know, listeners some context, you know, the stock is around 1550 or so. I was able to sell August 2021 puts with a $13 strike for $1.37. So over a 10% sort of, you know, standstill yield unannualized, which I viewed as pretty attractive. And it also meant, you know, I was effectively buying the stock at what, like $11.70, um, which at $11.70, I just told myself, like, that's a 30%, over 30% free cash flow yield that I would be backing up the truck to buy. Um, and it sort of drew the line in the sand for me of, 
hey, if the stock rips, this meets my return threshold. And if it doesn't and I get hit on this, then like, you know, that's fine because I'll buy that stock all day. Um, and so when I, that's sort of how I weigh those two decisions of like, hey, should I sell puts or not? At the end of the day, though, when, when you've got a stock that's trading at a 25% free cash flow yield that isn't too over levered in your opinion, and you think the cycle might be turning a little bit in its favor, you're kind of saying like, hey, I'll take a 10% return on this without realizing that you may be missing out on like a double on the stock by just owning the stock. Um, so I, I, I will say if, as a pre-mortem, it may not be the right decision, but I do think like, hey, this is a vol pretty volatile small cap with selling pressure. Who knows what could happen? Like it's a way to protect some downside in a, in a cyclical name. That completely makes sense to me. I mean, also, it's like you talk about the August expiry. What's really going to change about this story that that much in six months? And, you know, if it, it is getting spliced by some tail event, like that's a risk I'm willing to take. Um, pretty nice to be paid whatever 10% annualized to wait. So I think both are good. I think you could do well in either one. Um, I do want to touch on housing a bit before we close because you've written uh, about uh, a ton of things here. So, I mean, you have posts on... Uh, arenas, you have posts on mobile homes, uh, you have posts on commercial housing, uh, residential. So I, I want to cover some of those things, perhaps but we won't get to all of them. But I did want to start by, you know, in your audio clip, uh, one of your recent posts, you talk about how you look to actually buy a marina. So I didn't even know what that was before listening to the, the audio there. So there's definitely a story here. And yet, if you could describe what a marina is, because I had no idea what the hell it was uh, before <laughs> yesterday. Now, I, you know, I wish there was a sexier story behind it of, you know, maybe somebody approached me. But no, I was looking at acquiring a small business. Um, and honestly, uh, a couple marinas came up. And a marina is essentially where uh, people, you know, that own boats can can park their boats. Uh, and the marina basically does a lot of services for them. You know, they will either make sure the boat is well secured, they'll have different what they call slips, which are basically parking spots for the boat. Um, you know, they'll maybe they'll offer cleaning services, you know, if you're in salt water, maybe they'll get rid of barnacles, but they'll also provide like, you know, ways for you, the owners to clean the boats themselves. Um, and they'll also typically have like an, a way to pump gas and things like that. Um, Long story short, I looked at the businesses and some of them, you know, were in the Chesapeake Bay area and things like that. And I realized actually they're pretty amazing businesses. So number one, if you build a marina or have a marina already built, there's kind of a, like a NIMBY mentality where it's not in my backyard, where if you have a marina already built into the, um, into the coast or wherever you are, it's very, very hard to like go you know, a couple miles down the road and just say like, hey, that marina is doing pretty well. I'm going to build another one right here. The ability for you to get permitting or anything like that is just extremely hard. It's almost impossible. The second thing is once you've got your customers there, because you can't, the customer can't really go anywhere, you basically got someone locked in. So it's kind of how I view like a regional oligopoly. Like, yeah, there may be another player a few miles down the road, but you can raise price a little bit and they're probably not going to move. Um, and you, so, I mean, I view that as very attractive as like growing earnings and obviously price increases fall straight to the bottom line. So that, that's really attractive. And then the last thing is, you know, services are really underappreciated part, part of the business. So, you know, when you're charging for gas at one of these, facilities, you're not charging like what you and I pay at the gas pump. You're charging a pretty big premium for having it down there where the boat can fill up easily. Um, and so you're actually making a pretty huge margin on gas, which if you know anything about the gas station business, gas stations actually make maybe 1% margins on gas. Um, whereas at a marina, you're actually making some, some pretty attractive margin on it. And then that doesn't even include like you can offer you know, hot dog stand and things like that right there. Um, you know, other things like that or other services that you can fold in to really increase your sales. Um, so yeah, I uh, looked at acquiring a couple because I was really, in, uh, you know, attracted by it, didn't end up doing anything there. But, you know, if the right thing came along, I would have to give it a hard look. 
Yeah, unless you're like secretly a voting expert, uh, it seems like there's some operational expertise uh, that may be required. I, I think what's scary with stuff like that, too, is like, you know, you have sellers out there and it's kind of figuring out, are they selling for the right reasons? Uh, which to me, I would have wanted to like go down and look at the votes. I mean, I don't know how far you got in the diligence process, but like, sounds like it's a, it's a good opportunity of obviously like, you know, being on the ground floor and being like, what's going on here? sounds pretty important, too. That's, that's the other thing of like investing in stocks versus buying an actual business. You know, when we buy stocks, I mean, we're all technically probably a thousand feet up looking at these businesses and that, you know, we're outsourcing the management to other people. And that's, that's one of the best things about being an equity holder in stocks is as long as the management's good, like you can, you can tell, I mean, that's a big advantage of it's a true passive investment. Definitely. So you, you mentioned NIMBY earlier, so not in my backyard. Um, I think in, in your post you have for uh, marinas and also for mobile homes, uh, NIMBY is ultimately a positive because, uh, again, you can't really build like competing, um, competing things right near them. Uh, but for manufacturer housing, it's a negative because, you know, you're not really going to build a house in someone's backyard. Okay. Uh, but it does seem like from those two posts, you actually prefer manufactured housing. So I'd, I'd love to know your reasons for that. Or maybe you like both and want to recommend both here. Yeah, I mean... I do really like the marina business. And the reason why I, I found, uh, I wrote it on the blog because I found a company, um, two companies, Sun Communities and Equity Lifestyle Properties. Both of them started in the mobile home and RV park management business. And then they both acquired marinas. I guess one saw the other one did a really good job acquiring marina and they decided to do it too, which is kind of strange and not related. But um, in both cases, I like, the NIMBY aspect because, well, let me take a step back. I really like it for marinas because there's increasing demand for, you know, these outdoor lifestyle products, but marinas are like structurally short in supply. So like I said, we're raising price every year. You know, people probably aren't going to move. If there's more demand for that, like you're going to be able to raise price pretty significantly and people won't be able to move. I really like that. For RV parks and mobile home parks, and kind of is attractive for incumbents. But, you know, you mentioned we'll probably get into housing here. I've been writing about this for a few years, and I've actually been telling people about this for as long as I remember post-crisis. We're actually entering a period where we're really kind of in like a structurally short supply environment. And a lot of people are concerned right now, is housing too hot? And this has all basically been culminating in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So I'll try to shorten this down but you know obviously we overbuilt pre-crisis we had a, a bubble it popped and then i mean demand uh, demand was weak but also supply just got completely got cut off and not only did it get really cut off it was very slow to come back as we entered like seven eight year anniversary of the crisis I remember talking to home builders and them being like, look, we're not going to be the center of the next crisis. It's been eight years. We know another cycle is going to eventually come. I'm not going to invest in land at this point because I know I'll be able to buy it at a better price down the road. Well, there's a problem when every single one of them are, is saying that um, because they're all basically saying we're short land. Lo and behold, COVID hits, mortgage interest rates go down. At the same time, millennials, the oldest millennials are now 40. They're getting married, finally. They're having kids. They're getting pets. That is all driving demand for housing. Um, I don't really buy this, like, shift the suburbs story because that's been happening. I did a post on that. That's been happening for decades. There's not really a change to that story. It's really that these millennials have decided, like, okay, it's time. I have savings. Um, and so all that's coming to a head. Well, all that's coming to a head at the same time where you have big portion of the market is now investors buying single family homes. You have three REITs buying single family homes that did not exist pre-crisis. -pre um, you have investors out there like me, I own rental properties that are competing for those entry-level homes because there's renters out there as well. And so the prices of entry-level homes has gone way up. Um, and so I do think if there's any risk to the housing cycle, it's affordability. And there's tons of charts out there that will tell you like, oh, affordability is actually fine because your monthly payment is still low. Well, there's still an issue of a down payment of 
if the house that I thought was going to be, I'm just making the numbers, but $300,000 and I had to put $60,000 down to buy it. And now it's $400,000 and I had to bring up $80,000 as a down payment to buy it. Plus my monthly payment is going to be higher. That's just going to cause sticker shock where people pause. I think that is a risk that we could see happen. So long story short, what is the solution for the affordability problem? It's actually manufactured housing. And it's so funny to me that there's all these posts and articles out there on 3D printed homes and things like that that will help solve the affordability problem. It's like a 3D printed home is essentially a manufactured home. We Guys, we, we have that. We've had it for 50 years. Um, it, these homes are, are made in manufactured manufacturing facilities and then actually shipped to the lot. And so the home may cost like, you know, maybe $80,000 at this point. Prices have gone up a little bit for those as well. But the lot cost um, is probably only $30,000. So all in, you're talking like $120,000 for a, a good home. If you look at the product, you know, pictures now, this is no longer the ugly single wide trailer. A lot of them look really nice. Um Versus the competing product is over $100,000 more than that. I just think we have an issue because, you know, a lot of people in our industry forget the average American makes like $50,000. And there's a big swath of America that makes less than that. So I just don't think they're going to be able to afford homes uh, in the traditional way that, you know, maybe you or I would buy a home. The other big thing that's changed in the market too, is that you can now get a, a Fannie Freddie mortgage on a manufactured home, which is a big, big change. And that really, really helps affordability because as we all know, getting a conventional mortgage, the ability for an American to take on 30 year debt at essentially, you know, extremely low borrowing rates really helps your ability to buy a home and have an asset that is now being transferred to manufactured homes, which is a big development, I, I personally view. Um, I think a problem that going circling back to the NIMBY issue is, I just don't know how you're gonna be able to build even these products, which are supposed to help the affordability when you know housing authorities are essentially looking at permitting and saying like, no, we don't want you know, a manufactured housing development in our neighborhood. Uh, even if it looks nicer now, the approvals are not as high as where they need to be. So I do view that as a problem, but I also view manufactured housing is going to have a significant tailwind when the competing product is over $100,000 more. Makes sense. Yeah. In terms of like on the supply side, companies that are doing this, you, know, you mentioned Skylo and Skyline and Cavco. Uh, Clayton, which is owned by Berkshire Hathaway, is the third player. So these, those are kind of the three big guys in the market. Um, the, the the kind of like simplistic view I had is, oh, they they make the homes and then they sell them. And that's how they make money. But it actually seems like they do a lot more than that. So like, why do you like the business models of the home manufacturers? It's pretty interesting. I mean, it's it's super vertically integrated. So they manufacture the home. And then they also, you know, the names you mentioned, they also have retail areas. So it would almost be like, you know, manufacturing the car, but also owning the dealership. They do that. They also have their own trucking capabilities. So they actually ship the house to where it needs to be. Um, and then they also do financing. So all the big players have captive financing arms. Clayton is the big 800 back, 800 pound gorilla in that because it's Berkshire owned. Um, and they are, you know, a very attractive financer, but um, you know, Kind of just talking about this just made me think about another point of like why I like the business. Um, so you've got Clayton with the biggest share and then Skyline and Cavco coming up behind it. This is essentially an oligopoly at this point too. Uh, the industry is, is consolidated pretty significantly. <clears throat> There's another um, sort of micro cap, small cap name out there. I'm forgetting the name kind of out of Florida. Um, I'll remember it at some point, but you know, if you add up all four of those, I'd be willing to bet that you're over 80% market share for this industry. So, you know, I like that. Why not just own Clayton? Because, well, I guess you would have to own Berkshire, but I suppose the argument would be like, don't these guys have a much lower cost of capital being backed by Buffett? So why would I own like the, the lower two players? 
if I could, I would. I, I just don't, if you want to take a view on this owning Berkshire, I mean, you're, you're basically going to be buying uh, Geico, BNSF, and, you know, all the top, the Aerosparts, Aeroparts manufacturers, you're going to be owning those way more than you are Clayton because Clayton just isn't going to be big enough. Um, so I would if I could, but uh, it's just not, it's not a pure play yeah. um, ability to, to buy it. Yeah, I know we're both big fans of, uh, of Buffett and Berkshire, so we will find another time to talk about that. I did want to ask you one more quick thing on housing before we get to the performance tracking section of, of your blog, which I want to close with. So um, for REIT, like REITs are one way to play housing. And I think that's what a lot of investors think of when they're like, how should I kind of play this, this housing uh, resurgence? But like in some of your posts you've written, you, you have some issues with kind of the structural um, issues with REITs and why you don't really like REITs in general because of the things they can and can't do. Um, so I guess what's your beef with REITs? And you actually do, uh, you've written about Ladder Capital, which is a REIT. So clearly in the right situation, you'll buy them. Um, but yeah, if you could talk about some of your issues with REITs, I think that'd be pretty illuminating. A little bit different situation with Ladder being a mortgage REIT. So it's not really owning real estate, but um, you know, it's owning the mortgages under, underlying them. I, my beef with REITs is that, you know, this isn't necessarily right. Like REITs have had great track performance, but if you can tell, like I kind of just have this private equity background and it's like my returns, I want to rely on my returns coming from the cash flow of the asset. So I really struggle buying some of these REITs, like equity lifestyle properties and some communities was one where I really took a deep dive. And I looked at it and I said to myself, should I buy one of these assets where like the asset itself, I really like, but you know, it's going to grow probably GDP. It is, you know, it, it is the real estate asset itself that is going to, is going to grow, but that's kind of limited. You know, if you think about, you know, we, you mentioned Wingstop at the beginning of this or things like that. Wingstop will grow because it's creating earnings stream that it can grow to more locations and it can get there through internally generated funds. That is like the morals of the story of like compounding capital. REITs, on the other hand, especially the ones I mentioned, and I mean, I'm sure there's way worse ones. You know, you're buying low yielding assets and you're putting debt on it, which is totally fine in my view. But you basically have to go out and raise equity capital to go and, and fund that growth. And the reason why you have to do that is because the REIT structure mandates that you distribute all your earnings out um, in order to not pay taxes. So they, can't, they don't ever build up capital to be, to be able to do things like truly organically. So, I mean, long story short, they are over dependent on the capital markets, in my view, for me to be a, you know, really attracted to it. And so I think in the post, I'd sort of make the example of like, you know, I, I think I used Home Depot, which the, the exact numbers are escaping me, but it's like, would I rather own a business that, you know, let's, let's just take like two, two businesses side by side. One is generating like a hundred million free cash flow or yeah, one is generating a hundred million of operating cash flow. The other one is two. The first one maybe spends 20 million in CapEx. The other one has to spend like 50 million because it's dealing with like real estate and having to deal with leasehold improvements and things like that. And then to grow and open up or, you know, let me, let me backtrack. One has 80 million in free cash flow. One has 50 million. One, you've already had the growth because in that 20 million, you know, they're doing anything from opening up new locations to everything like that. So they have $50 million to either buy back stock, pay dividends or acquire things. Whereas the other one only has 50 million. Um, I, I don't know. It's just like, I actually, I should, I should even go back. Cause like problem with REITs is that, you know, they have, a, they don't have that ability to generate that actual free cash flow that you would need. So, I mean, when you look at the free cash flow, because they actually have to distribute all that as dividends. And a lot of these dividends aren't like necessarily pound the table. Great. I don't know. Not the best worded answer, but it's just, it's not a great equity compounding capital story in my view. Mm -hmm. If you want to actually buy a business, park your cash in that business and just let it compound. That's what I want. I don't want to buy a business where I give them a hundred dollars and they go buy an asset. And then in two years in order to grow, they have to come back to me for another hundred dollars. 
Like if this was a pure private market transaction, that's kind of how the story would be for these REITs. And some, you know, I've heard some pushback on that, like, oh, some of the benefit of REITs is that they're able to issue equity and issue capital at like a premium to NAV and stuff like that. It's like, I don't really want to get into that game. That's not attractive to me. Yes, it almost seems like you can't really have like a great capital allocator who uh, is like CEO of a REIT just because one of the capital allocation decisions is being taken out of their hands, right? Like they can't actually do as much as they want with the free cash flow just because they have to pay it out. So that, that did resonate with me. I think like REIT investors would push back by saying like, oh, well, they can issue equity and issue debt and they can issue premium to NAV and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, to your point, I mean, all that depends on having access to capital markets, which is like, that, so, you know, one decision is taken out of your hands because they have to pay the dividends. And the second one might be taken out of your hands without your choice because the capital markets could slow or shut down for any reason. For sure. Yeah, to bring this conversation full circle, like, I mean, you do have in that post, the leverage thesis of like, you know, owning good companies with bad balance sheets. It's only true that the capital markets are always open. Like REITs, you know, you're, you're, you can't even rely on self-funding because they, they need to tap the capital markets pretty frequently. That's right. Yep. Awesome. So let's close with this new performance tracking section of your blog. Super cool. Recommend everybody check it out on diligent-dollar.com. Um, but in putting it together, I mean, it must have taken a while because you've recommended a ton of names uh, on your blog. But yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if there were any interesting insights specifically, like what's your biggest driver of return? Um, and then what's your biggest, uh, biggest driver of loss also? And like what you learned from kind of finding out those two things? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, it did take a little bit of time to go through. I had to go and look at like, okay, which which post did I actually like recommend a stock or you know recommend doing this versus just like some you know kind of like. But I sometimes put my macro thoughts out there. But fortunately, I just used like Bloomberg to pull the prices as of the recommendation date to now for the total return. So I do try to capture dividends. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, biggest learnings. I will have to say, um, you know, business quality probably played a big part. You know, I, I think some of my best returns were really high quality businesses that were just being totally discarded. Um, that's probably number one. A decent amount of them came through COVID. Uh, like some of the really big winners came through COVID. Um, so part of that was like, you know, I did a big post on like recommending banks at the time because I thought, you know, banks were trading at huge discounts, did not think, you know, people understood that, you know, we had some of the biggest capital buffers ever coming into this. So they were going to be able to withstand that. Um, and so it was funny. It was like, you know, I, I did. it's not like I recommended buying like crappy banks. I was like, oh, let's let's buy some high quality banks that I think have, have sold off too much. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, where we go from here. Um, Cause you know, some of these recommendations have come within the last six months. I do like for the, some of the positions to invest for a certain period of time. Um, you know, one, one, you know, just going back to the REITs, one name that, you know, didn't do too well for me was core point. Um, I think I've learned, you know, it's tough. Don't bank on the discount to book value. Um, don't bank on, you know, things holding up. I, I will say, you know, that one's underperformed. You and I talk about this one offline a decent amount. It's funny because it's, it, is an ex, it is an example of like, if I didn't see the market quote for this one, I, I would be fine because they are selling assets at a way higher um value than what book is that's actually one of the few names on there that i've said exit so that's one thing about the performance tracking is it just assumes that you hold it until i say stop which isn't perfect eventually i think i will say like okay here's how i would set up a portfolio but i haven't done that yet um and it's funny you know that one could continue to outperform if they just continue to sell assets at well above book and well above where they trade on an EBD EBITDA basis. So it's interesting. Yeah. I'm still holding that. I mean, I, I will say I, I also, you know, based on the performance of CorePoint, I've, I've learned the hard way too that discount to book is not a margin of safety in itself. I mean, the other thing about that one too is I, I think, you know, I, I had just read that Joel Greenblatt book 
um, about you know how to be a stock market genius, which really covers like spinoffs as a, a hidden source of alpha. I think my core point thesis perhaps hinged uh, too deeply on on the spinoff uh, somehow creating an opportunity. But yeah, at the end of the day, I think like if you wouldn't want to own the business privately and have, have questions about the operating performance, you should probably take a step back. And you know, we pre-COVID, CorePoint just kept reporting quarter after quarter of, of subpar performance. Yeah, it might have been a sign there. I will say the other learn about the dis- learning about discount the book is like I still will probably use it, but I, I you need to have visibility on when can they realize book value. So, I, you know, ladder was discount the book, and I was I basically pointed out like, okay, in two years they're gonna have the loans are gonna mature. And so the cash is going to be in the bank. And so you're actually going to have the cash. So trading in a discounted book doesn't make a ton of sense there. And, and like Bryce, uh, another example was New Home. It's like New Home is selling their lots constantly. So they're going to get that capital back and then have to redeploy it in the business. They're going to get the book value back. Um, CorePoint, they're selling assets. So they're going to get the book value it's just going to be, you know, realistically a multi-year scenario of what's going to happen there. I view it, I, I put this in one of my posts of like, I view it similar to like, it's like having a 2% coupon bond that goes out 50 years when the market rate is 5%. Obviously, that's going to trade at a big discount to, to par. It might be worth par, but it's not going to trade at par until you like get closer to maturity. That's very similar to these stocks that are trading at a discounted book. Like their returns on capital probably aren't high. And so the market is basically just saying like, okay, it should trade at a discounted book. Yep. You did remind me actually of a book value question I wanted to ask before we, we wrapped up. So with Civia, I was going to bring this up in our, our discussion. You know, they took a massive impairment charge uh, for 2020. And, you know, I was asking you about it offline. Um, what One thing I didn't know that you had said is like, it seems like from an accounting perspective, there are laws that force companies to recognize impairments, but like markups don't really happen the same way. So like you know, management could know, you know, this asset is really worth a ton more than what we have a marked down for, but it's not like you would mark it up on your books. That's right. And I think this, this might've come up with another name too, that we were um, talking about that I haven't written up or anything, but Armstrong flooring, they sold one of their plants for a huge, I think it was like, they sold it for 70 million, which was like 60 million above what the book value was. Um, and anyway, that's like a micro cap. So that was meaningful. But anyway, um, yeah, so Civeo did have to take an impairment. Obviously, impairments are non-cash, but every year you essentially have to look at, um, okay, what did I record this asset on the balance sheet as? And why did I put that value there? For some, it could be you had to forecast what you thought the cash flows of the asset were going to be. And Every year when you analyze that, if the cash flows aren't what you thought, then you have to take an impairment. Um, and it's kind of funny because like, there's a lot of assumptions in there. For home builders especially, there's a lot of room. So you can like, you can change the, you know, for your community that you have, you can change like your gross margin assumption, you can change your asking price assumption, and you can change like the pace that you sell those assets to sort of finagle the DCF so you never have to take an impairment. So that was kind of an interesting thing coming out of the crisis where home builders probably should have taken more impairments, but they actually, you know, they didn't. So Tebeo, I mean, they took a big impairment. One thing is, you know, they record it, record, um, you know, uh, the lodges value on their balance sheet. And as the commodity like bust happened, they had to take a big impairment. And also they acquired Neralta. And so when you, acquire an asset and then you know you're acquiring it typically for above like what the book value is that's that's put as goodwill and so you know when they have to mark down that asset essentially that goodwill based on the cash flows they thought the asset was going to generate and then end up didn't then they have to mark down that goodwill so i'm never too concerned about it um unless it was like some sort of intellectual property that ended up being you know marked down significantly in this case, it's, you know, it's kind of like I know the cat's out of the bag. Earnings have been going down for this company with commodities. If things turned around, they would not mark that back up. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's all about the cash flow at the end of the day. And that's really what I focus on. Yep. Yeah, it, it does create 
an interesting dynamic around like price to book as a ratio, right? Because as you said, it's mark to market on the way down, but not on the way up. So I mean, my hope for core point is uh, the book value is depressed. And I mean, it trades at 66% of book value. Uh, so I'm still hodling as the crypto people like to say. We, we've talked about it. I mean, we've, we've added up all the, you know, if you add up the multiple they've sold, isn't it like two times book, like on average, like mm-hmm. it's pretty ridiculous. Um, and yet, you know, they really don't get a ton of love for what they actually have book value recorded as what, you know, time will tell. That's kind of the great thing about the market. And I, I did tweet this out. Um, you know, I would, I would kind of love a service that wouldn't let me look at the market every day. I kind of wish I could just let the cash flow do its thing and, you know, I'll come back later, but alas, you know, it's probably my own problem of self-control that I log in every day. Yep. Yeah. If core point ever works out for me and there's some type of event uh, where it goes out, it's it sold to a private buyer at a premium or something. I want an apology post on thousand dollar <laughs> explaining that you said to sell too early. I'm Although sorry. I've probably been outperformed by the market because I've, I've held for like two years since you wrote that post. That's right. It, it would be, I'm sorry for getting you into this and I'm sorry for telling you to get out too early. <laughs> A double apology. All right, buddy. Um, yeah, I guess where can people find you and what are you going to write about next for Diligent Dollar? Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, at uh, Diligent or at Dollar Diligent is my Twitter handle. Um, you can search for Diligent Dollar too. Um, that's that's my Twitter. I, I do like to tweet here here and there. Um, but also diligent-dollar.com is the blog. Um, and that's where I try to do a post, you know, every week or so. Um, you know, I'm not super specific about when I do posts. But that's where you can find all of my research and everything I've posted in the past. Awesome, yeah. And everybody get on the mailing list. Uh, you can see exactly when Diligent is, is posting. All right, buddy. Uh, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, man. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of Stock Talking and read a blog with my latest trade recommendations, market commentary, and more, visit postcoronastocks.com.